Hey everybody, so this is the final part of Agro-Industrial Society and its future by our friend Will, and it goes into Marx, economic planning, what actually sustainable industrial systems might look like, and tying everything up from the last two parts together. Huge thank you to Will again for sending all of this over and writing it all up, and Dan and I would really like to encourage people to really engage with this stuff and contribute any ideas that you all may have. Because you'll really see right at the end, if any of this stuff is actually going to be successful, it's going to need to be a collaborative project. So anyways, that's enough for me. You can find all of the links to the essay and the diagrams, journals, and spreadsheets below at the Google Drive link. And enjoy the final part. I first came to the writings of Marx when I was 13, and at the time I was very much immersed in the works of Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell. Their work was what led directly to modern physics and Einstein's theory of relativity, who first introduced me to the idea of socialism. The way those people wrote and thought was like nothing I'd ever seen before, and I learned through them the true potential of what a human being was capable of becoming. That was a time in the history of science that had a fanaticism and a passion that has never been equaled since. The things they achieved, considering how rudimentary the equipment they were working with was, is absolutely incredible. When I came to Marx, I could see immediately that he was coming directly out of that same culture, that had, as its central mission, taking human understanding to its absolute limits, and here was someone directing that perspective at the entire social structure, and that was beautiful. At the time, I didn't realize there was any other idea about how a communist society was to be established other than a labor voucher system. It made perfect sense and all seemed to flow directly out of his labor theory of value from the beginning of capital. I just thought, well, of course, that's the most reasonable way to measure the value of a commodity, and we could just use that directly as the way of distributing the products of labor. It wasn't until years later when I started talking to other Marxists that I realized their entire focus was on these obscure historical disputes that didn't have anything to do with what I'd been reading. The whole idea of using labor time as the basis of a new economic system was conspicuously absent. This had been replaced by ideas about the collective ownership of the means of production that were so vague that they seemed to be utterly meaningless. Any specific ideas as to how this was to be implemented was considered to be impossible to be determined in advance, because apparently Marx just forgot to elaborate on it, and we were all to just figure it out ourselves at a moment's notice, once society had collapsed to a point where revolution was achievable, because it all had to be compatible with the material conditions at the time, and everything else was just strictly utopian. That's an extraordinarily destructive idea that's taken hold in this community, to place arbitrary limits on our understanding without any investigation, in direct contradiction to the authority you're appealing to on the matter, and somehow these are supposed to be the guiding light that shall lead all humanity to its freedom from tyranny. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. These people make liberals seem reasonable. What has happened to my movement? What has become of this meticulously detailed and compelling explanation of the origins of the fundamental problems of our society and the ways these can be addressed? There are things we are able to know about the productive forces themselves that are relevant to the implementation of socialism. We don't need to stop at theories of how social relations might be changed so that they can be used to benefit everyone. I'd like to, as best as I know how, describe the structure I see of the productive forces, how I think this structure can be described mathematically, and how the relevant information needed to use this mathematical structure to help guide production on a societal level can be derived from the activity of production. I'll try to explain a bit how food systems relate to this whole network, and why they, along with agricultural systems generally, play such a central role in society. I also want to touch on the sustainability of technology, especially what an economic system without fossil fuel consumption might look like, and how that might affect the potential technological sophistication of agriculture. Capital is a special category of commodities, not just because it can produce other commodities when combined with labor, it can produce itself. Somewhere within that complex of capital, there is a self-replicating machine that, when acted upon by labor, can make an exact copy of itself. 
I want to cut away the fat from the whole system and find the beating heart of this monstrosity, understand its internal anatomy and the mechanisms that allow it to physically reproduce itself. I think the best way of doing that is by focusing on the means of subsistence and the processes involved in their production, because this is the branch of the machine that facilitates the reproduction of labor power, which is essential to the operation of the thing. A large portion of that is the food system, along with housing and all the other domestic goods in those houses, with textiles occupying a significant portion of that subset in terms of variety and technical complexity. The idea of a food system is important because it attempts to go beyond agriculture proper and include in its analysis the entire chain of processes involved in the food supply, the primary production of organisms in the agricultural systems, the infrastructure required to accomplish this, and to initially store and move all this food around, all of the food processing systems that transform the raw materials of food into the ingredients of cookery, and finally the entire process of then making these into prepared meals. This concept is then often extended to so-called agri-food systems that extend into this complex system all of the non-food systems of agricultural systems, such as natural fiber production and wood products, and their entire system of processing that transforms them into finished goods. Within this broad view, there is how these systems operate in the world now, how these systems have operated in the past, and combining these both together, you get the range of historically developed systems available to draw on. Then you have ideas of how these systems might operate in the future, both in terms of combinations of historical systems and experimental systems that could be in their nascent stage of development or untried theoretically possible systems. This is a useful way of thinking about the physical structure of capital from a systems theory perspective, because it identifies the areas of production that rely on biological processes, what technical systems exist to facilitate these processes and then transform organisms into products, what these products are, what the organisms are that they're relying on to do these things, and the physiological requirements that they have. Systems that have organisms as their input or output are fundamentally more complex than those that don't. They're more unpredictable, they're often more variable, the objects they contain are continuously changing over time, they're often ephemeral in the way that food is, and they must be constantly regenerated and consumed. Although the scope of what's being considered is vast, and the complexity of this network of processes is extremely high, there's nothing about these things that are fundamentally beyond our ability to understand, even if our understanding will always be in some ways incomplete. It is important to develop this understanding, particularly if we're trying to bring into being a new economic system for today. All economic activity is made possible by the agri-food system precisely because this is the area of economic activity that is most directly generating the means of subsistence. It allows a subset of the population to do something other than reproduce labor power. It is the foundation that the rest of the economy is built upon, and the outputs of this system significantly impact the quality of life of a population in terms of food quality the quality of housing, and the quality of clothing. The agri-food system, as an abstract collection of technical systems, encompasses all possible ways of physically organizing that economic foundation, and the particular systems you select from that collection and implement sets off a chain reaction of industrial processes that become necessary to construct and maintain that system. The aggregate output of the system must provide for the basic needs of the people operating that system, in addition to a surplus output that sustains all people that are part of the economy outside of the agri-food system. For any given agri-food system, there is an associated set of mechanical objects, building materials, electrical systems, synthetic chemicals, etc. that are the outputs of an associated industrial system. Together, these represent a sort of minimally complex economic system in the sense that you need at least this industrial system in place to supply inputs and replace parts that are being continuously used up by the operation of a particular agri-food system. 
This industrial system may be using the outputs of the agri-food system for some of its inputs, but to some extent this industrial system is inherently extractive, requiring mineral extraction for its own source of raw materials. An agricultural system cannot be said to be sustainable if the industrial system that sustains it cannot be sustained. At the same time, this minimally complex economy must be efficient enough that the aggregate output generated by the aggregate input of labor hours can provide the means of subsistence to at least its entire population or it ceases to constitute a food supply. This minimal economic system is also deriving the energy it consumes from somewhere, and the source of the energy used influences the specific technical systems that can be implemented. The growth and development of the modern industrial complex was made possible largely by a readily available supply of natural gas, petroleum, and coal, and so most of the industrial systems we have to work with require these inputs to operate. If the goal is to design an agri-food system that is sustainable in any meaningful sense of the word, the associated industrial system must be able to operate without any of those inputs. It can't be emphasized enough how extreme of a design requirement that is, because many industrial processes are extremely energy intensive and a very large number of industrial important chemicals use petrochemicals as their feedstock. A drastic reduction in per capita energy availability would radically limit the kinds of agricultural systems that are actually feasible, as well as reduce the labor efficiency of mineral extraction, resulting in a severe decline in the labor available for all other economic activity. One potential way of at least partially overcoming that problem would be to derive that energy from biomass, though that introduces into the system a whole new set of difficult-to-overcome problems. How difficult or easy that is to do will vary significantly from region to region, especially if you try to go the bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECCS route that would require the right kinds of geological formations beneath the power plant to pump CO2 into. Carbon capture and storage, or CCS, would use up a sizable portion of the energy generated by the power plant, but that might be worth it if it can turn the system into a carbon-negative process. There are legitimate concerns about how feasible CCS is, if that can be done without significant leaking, what effect this might have on groundwater or the geological formations, but it is at least worth seriously considering. The big problem with this idea is if biomass is the primary energy source, you would need very intensive tree plantations and other biomass sources to feed it, and this would almost certainly have large-scale negative effects on the ecosystem if implemented. A lot of this depends on the scale you're attempting to do all of this on, the specific cultivation systems you're using, and the systems you're using to transport massive amounts of very heavy material long distances to these power plants. One system that seems especially promising to me is George Ola's proposal of a methanol economy where wood or other biomass would be gasified and converted into a synthesis gas, or syngas, consisting of a mixture of hydrogen, carbon monoxide, and CO2, which is now mostly made with natural gas and coal. The syngas can then be converted into methanol fuel that can be used as is, or then can be made into dimethyl ether, a gaseous fuel similar to propane that is relatively easy to compress and provide a low emissions fuel for diesel engines. The methanol itself can run internal combustion engines or can be used in methanol fuel cells, and though it has about half the energy density of gasoline, it's a liquid fuel that would be a good replacement. The synthesis gas has an excess of CO2, so if more hydrogen was put to use in the reactors, it could be easily converted into more methanol. This allows electricity from intermittent renewable sources to drive the electrolysis process to create green hydrogen and pure oxygen, and this can then be processed into easily storable liquid fuel as opposed to the rather difficult-to-use batteries or hydrogen storage systems. 
How useful this system really is depends a lot on how much energy things like solar or wind can actually provide in the long run, because if it's a lot, the scale of the biomass plantations required is much less problematic. In a similar way, syngas made from biomass can also be easily converted directly into methane to make synthetic natural gas, and this can be pumped directly into the existing natural gas pipeline system. There are a lot of reasons you might want to do this that I won't go into here, but a major one is that natural gas is very good at generating power close to population centers because it has very low particulate emissions and a high Carnot efficiency. It's particularly good for combined heat and power, or CHP, applications that can provide district heating. CHP is very useful because you can utilize the waste heat of a power plant, which is typically a larger amount of energy than the energy of the electricity generated, and direct that heat in the form of hot water flowing through insulated underground pipes to supply residential or industrial heating needs. Additionally, waste heat from industrial operations can be recovered and reused by storing it in this hot water network using heat exchangers. If there was an excess of heat, this could be used for the production of food in greenhouses through the winter, or even the cultivation of tropical plants in temperate climates. If that system incorporates absorption or adsorption chillers, you could get a combined cooling heat and power system, or CCHP, that could also supply cold water in a similar way for refrigeration and air conditioning. That would be especially useful for a rural community focusing heavily on food production because you can have a direct supply of gaseous fuel from a pipeline that supplies a CCHP plant that provides cooling for the entire cold chain system needed for storing perishable food along with heat and electricity for the entire community. The CO2 reduced by the CCHP plant can then be separated and converted into a methanol fuel using hydrogen produced using renewable electricity sources. A CHP or CCHP facility can operate by burning biomass directly, but it will have more harmful emissions than a methane-fueled plant, which is problematic if it's located near densely populated areas, which it would need to be to supply those with heating or cooling. This biomass-fueled syngas process is also able to provide the raw materials for the full range of synthetic hydrocarbons that are currently made from oil and natural gas, allowing practically all of polymer synthesis to continue. Synthesis gas itself is extremely important for industrial chemical processes requiring hydrogen that include the Haber-Bosch process of ammonia synthesis, so the same system can be used as a general method of converting biomass into hydrogen gas for these processes if that can't be done easier using renewable electricity. For example, this would allow you to convert wood into raw materials you'd need for making foam board insulation panels for houses or for making wood into the formaldehyde-based glues required for plywood production. Some other important materials coming out of this synthetic pathway are polyethylene and polycarbonate plastic used in greenhouses, synthetic rubbers, a wide range of energetic materials, industrial lubricants, and many of the chemical building blocks of pharmaceutical drugs like acetic acid. This has applications that reach far beyond polymer and hydrocarbon fuel synthesis as well, because synthesis gas can be used as a reducing gas for making direct reduced iron, or DRI, out of pelletized iron ore. This allows you to convert iron ore into metallic iron without melting it, bypassing the need for blast furnaces in primary steel production, and by doing so, eliminating the need for coke derived from coal in steel production. The DRI is compressed into hot briquetted iron, or HBI, that resemble charcoal briquettes, reducing its reactivity and allowing it to be effectively shipped out to steel mills where it's converted into steel using electric arc furnaces, or EAF, that can derive their electricity from renewable energy sources or from biomass-driven power plants. 
This is the general process that most of the carbon-neutral steel manufacturing proposals rely on, but it can also be extended to cupola systems that produce cast iron as well as ductile iron. DRI is what allows a steel mill to operate on a scale much smaller than an integrated steel mill without relying exclusively on the recycling of scrap metal. Since the basic oxygen furnace has to be overcome, the necessary scale it imposes on the system isn't as much of a restriction, and a more limited set of rolled steel products can be made, though it can also form the basis of a larger, completely integrated system. The cokeless cupola developed in the 1970s allows for the melting of iron without using coke as an input instead of using gaseous fuel like methane to melt the iron charge, which can use HBI as up to 30% of its consumption along with scrap metal. In this system, the cupola performs the initial melting and then the molten iron is transferred into an EAF to superheat the metal to temperatures suitable for casting. The carbon component is provided by injecting graphite rather than coming from coke fuel, and depending on the amount injected and the chemical composition of the iron charge, this system can produce either gray iron, which is typical cast iron used for, among other things, the body of machine tools, or it can make ductile iron, which is a more malleable and ductile form of iron with a specific carbon nodule shape that is very important for making things like ductile iron pipe used in water supply networks or for components of heavy vehicles like tractors or mining machinery. This cupola-based foundry system, together with the rolled steel processes of the continuous casting system in a steelworks, form the ultimate basis for all of the raw steel and iron stock that enter into industrial steel and ironworking operations and represent a significant portion of the entire metalworking industry. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of other systems that are possible that could serve as the foundation of an industrial system that does away with fossil fuel inputs, but this at least gives you an idea of what such a system might look like that is constructed entirely out of already existing processes that are presently well established. There are a lot of other metals and alloying components that would need to be included, of course, that I'm not going to describe here, but these constitute a smaller share of the overall percentage of metal produced, and many of these require a similar reduction process as for iron, or, for example, aluminum, can be effectively smelted using electrically driven processes. There are also all kinds of other especially energy-intensive material that can be made on a large scale including cement production, ceramic materials, and glass products, but as long as you can produce a synthetic methane, they don't impose any serious problems. This whole section of the industrial system, the energy and raw material supply system, form the sort of foundation of the foundation for the rest of the system. As far as I can tell, no one has any clear idea of how well that system would actually operate or what the fundamental limitations of that system are, what mineral or water resource limits exist, or how efficient any of these processes are from an energy or labor efficiency standpoint. Whatever data has been collected is to a large extent artificially removed from our view. It is either behind paywalls or this knowledge is siloed by private business organizations and isn't available to the public. There is still a lot of literature published on this sort of thing, especially in the last few years though. In the 2022 paper on the history and future of 100% renewable energy systems research by C. Breyer et al. gives a pretty good overview of modern academic perspectives on the subject and presents some of the modeling work that's been done. I'm not sure that I'm quite as optimistic as they are, but from what I understand about the sort of options available to us, the basic system they are describing there seems pretty reasonable and realistic. I think we do know enough about the kinds of systems that can operate without fossil fuel inputs to say that it's at least conceptually possible to have a food system with significant industrial inputs that is sustainable overall, even if a lot of the specific details about such a system are unclear. 
Based on a proposal for an alternative industrial system like what I've described, you can map out all of the components that constitute the system as a flowchart and describe how these components are interacting with each other and in this way describe the overall structure of such a system, at least on a sort of abstract level. At this level of abstraction, the system is sort of just hanging in midair. We're only concerned with the broad categories of technical systems and the flows of materials or energy moving between these types of facilities and aggregate. We aren't concerned with where they are located, or how many of them there are, or how big they are, or at what rates things are moving from one to another, or at what rates parts are being used up and replaced. Just with what are the raw materials each type of facility requires to operate, and what facilities are supplying these raw materials once these facilities have been set up and are operating. A flowchart of this system is useful purely as a visual description of how the system is operating, what it's made up of, and what's producing and consuming what, and so it makes it easier for us to comprehend at a glance, though how comprehensible it would actually be I'm not so sure, because it would appear as an immense tangled ball of interactions. The real purpose of this mapping out of the system as a flowchart is that you can then represent the system as a mathematical structure, specifically as a graph, by using the techniques of graph theory, which allows you to do all sorts of useful things with it. In this system, you can convert a flowchart of this kind into a graph, G, with each facility represented as a node or vertex contained within a set of vertices, V, and the interactions between the vertices are represented as a set of links or edges, E, where in its simplest form, the graph is an ordered pair notated as G equals V, E. The simple version of this is that you would need the number of vertices of the graph and construct a matrix called the adjacency matrix where the rows from top to bottom are labeled as 1, 2, 3, etc. and the columns from left to right are also labeled as 1, 2, 3. And this forms a square diagonally symmetric matrix where the entries are 0 or 1, 0 indicating that the vertices aren't interacting and 1 indicating that the vertices are interacting. This is kind of the core idea behind the linear programming systems of Kantorovich and Leontief, but graph theory is an entire subdiscipline of discrete mathematics, and there are many more things you can do with this. This sort of system is particularly useful for describing flow networks with applications in things like the flow of electrons through an electrical circuit or the flow of water through a distribution network, and these sorts of calculations can become incredibly complex, often requiring iterative calculations that gradually approximate a solution. The system we are looking at is specifically a directed multigraph, directed because materials or forms of energy are moving from one facility to another, a multigraph because there can be multiple materials or forms of energy moving from one facility to another. In other words, the edges have a direction and the vertices can have multiple edges linking them. Once you can describe a system like this in matrix notation, you can start applying mathematical notations that conceive of matrices as sets of vectors in a multidimensional coordinate space called a vector space. You can then use the techniques of linear algebra that formalize the properties of vector spaces and the operations that can be performed on them to construct systems of equations that are the vector space equivalent of normal algebraic equations. For instance, you can solve for a variable that is a matrix in an optimization problem, like the fertilizer calculation I sent does. Linear programming is just one particular method for doing this and is a part of a much broader field of mathematical optimization techniques. There are also hierarchical levels of analysis possible here. We're looking at the level of the overall system structure, a particular system with multiple instances of each facility at different scales that each have a position in a geographical space and are interacting with each other becomes what's called a multi-commodity flow network. We are taking our general system description and adding on to this mathematical structure more levels of information that makes the overall representation more complex and detailed. 
The overall system structure is treating this more complex system as an aggregate, as if all of the facilities of one type were one facility, and describes how the system is behaving as a whole. If you did have more information, like how much electricity and methane gas are required to produce a certain amount of steel, how much energy and steel are required for each type of rolled steel rock of a certain length, how much wood produces, how much methane or electrical energy, etc., you could then use this information to give you a general idea of the relative proportions that would be reasonable for an overall system like this to have. If you had information about the scale at which each system becomes practical to implement and how the scale of facilities influences their overall efficiency, you could then use this model to get an idea of the minimal scale a system like this could have. This sort of model, like linear programming in general, is useful for the problem of scaling elements of a system relative to each other so that overall inputs and outputs are in balance. The system also has a recursive structure. Below the level of the higher systems interactions, each facility is itself representable as a flowchart and graph, with all of its internal components interacting with each other. A more natural way of describing these process flows within a facility would be by using system dynamics models that apply models based on systems of differential equations that can describe how elements of the system are changing over time while they are interacting with each other. This is the mathematical technique you introduce when you're not dealing with relatively simple linear system interactions and need to account for complex interactions between parts that are occurring over time. These systems are typically non-linear. Often they will include the accumulation of stock and variable flow rates between elements. They might display oscillatory behavior or complex feedback loops and can incorporate time delays. A lot of the language and concepts Beer is using when talking about complex systems and dynamic models is coming directly from the system dynamics perspective, which had essentially just been developed and was only able to be utilized once the computation power of computers was up to the task. These kinds of mathematical representations are of course not limited to small-scale systems. They can be applied at all scales, but at a large system-wide scale, you often don't have or can't have the relevant information about system parameters that allow any clear solution to be possible. Climate modeling systems that are used to forecast possible effects of global warming are a good example. They can simulate certain scenarios given particular paths humanity takes, and this can be useful to guide behavior, compare possible proposed solutions, or describe possible outcomes, but they can't themselves predict future behavior. A specific industrial process at a specific place, however, is limited enough in scope that you can effectively measure the relevant parameters with enough accuracy that systems of differential equations can be used to construct an adequate representation of the system. These systems are also often complex enough that that is the only way to adequately describe the system. It should be noted here that these are not in any way opposed systems of mathematical modeling. The kinds of differential equations that are used to model complex systems, even nonlinear systems of differential equations, tend to be the kinds of differential equations that can be solved, and they almost always can be solved or approximated because they can be reduced to linear algebra problems by applying this formalized treatment of matrices and vector spaces. Even problems of differential or integral calculus essentially consist of forcing principles of linear algebra onto nonlinear mathematical subjects. Linear algebra is in a real sense the only mathematics subject we truly understand and our understanding of other areas of mathematics comes from applying these fundamental theorems and concepts from linear algebra to those of other subjects. Ultimately, when talking about the mathematical representation of a system, or for that matter, all of the mathematical descriptions of the fundamental physical laws of nature, it's vector spaces all the way down. So, with whatever new insights you've managed to glean from that, let's return to the only subject of any real interest to all true Marxists the world over, that of agricultural machinery and the agro-industrial complex we all know and love. We have our foundational complex industrial system, 
conveniently hanging in the vacuum of space, surely being admired at a distance by God and his angels, who nod approvingly, interacting with him at all hours of the day and night, capable of producing an exact copy of itself on a whim. Its internal interactions have been delineated by an adjacency matrix by God's only perfect creation, the subject of linear algebra. Its individual facilities have themselves been modeled dynamically by applied systems of differential equations that describe how the individual components that together constitute those facilities interact with each other to produce the overall system behavior. Now, for this system to be able to produce an exact copy of itself, as it is wont to do, it must include within itself the means of producing all of these individual components that constitute its facilities. Imagine that you took all of the useful minerals contained on Earth as they exist in geological formations right after you ripped them up out of the ground and made big piles of them in a circle. There are a lot of these minerals, but they aren't infinitely many, and some of them will be roughly interchangeable. The circle is big enough that you can set down our foundational industrial system inside of it, and you put a really big building in the middle of it, big enough to contain all the means of producing all of the individual components. The industrial system contains the facilities that refine all of these mined minerals into the raw inputs for the system, smelts the metallic ores, and forms all the metals. The industrial system also contains a tree plantation that feeds an additional pile of wood together with a syngas-generating wood gasification facility where nature can be converted into flammable gas for its own good. This is a windy world, and a fleet of wind turbines spin at the distance, and these, together with massive solar panel arrays and a glowing concentrating solar power tower with thermal storage, feed the system an intermittent stream of electrical energy. You go into one of these facilities and take a component out of it and place it in the middle of the big building, and break it down into all of its individual parts. You then inspect each piece carefully and determine how it was made, what it's made out of, measure all of its features, and draw up a blueprint that includes all of the processes and the machines that must perform them in order to replicate the part. Whatever machines you need are placed in the big building and the raw materials are bought in. The time to set up the machine is recorded, and the time to make the part, and the time to tear down and bring the machine back to its original condition, and the raw materials required and energy consumed to make the part. You do this with all the parts, adding more machines into the building as they are needed. Then you form them all into a replica of this component, put that in the place of the original, and the original is dragged out several miles away and put on the ground. The blueprints are rolled up into scrolls and put in a big library of Alexandra-type storehouse with all human technical knowledge. You keep doing this with all the components of the facility until, Ship of Theseus style, the entire facility is composed of replicas and the old facility is rebuilt several miles away. Do this with all the facilities until the entire foundational industrial system has been replaced and a replica of it is constructed several miles away. Inside the building is now all of the machinery required to replicate the foundational industrial system, and in the library is all of the technical information required to do so, along with all of the information needed to estimate the required materials, energy, and labor time for producing any of the components. This isn't the only information obtained from performing this replication. You also now have all of the interactions between the surrounding foundational industrial system and its internal machine complex, which you can use to construct a graph of the system. To complete the replication, you take each machine in the building and put it in the center of the building, break them down into their components, and repeat the process until no new machines need to be put into the building, and the big building a few miles away contains all of the original and new machines. This gives the interactions between the components of the internal machine complex that, combined with the casting process of the foundry, form the heart of the machine that facilitates the circulation of fixed capital through the system by physically reproducing it, and, if fed raw materials, labor, and energy, can reproduce itself. 
I think that in any technical system, you can extract out of it a machine complex of this kind. It can replicate itself, and it can replicate any other sort of mechanical object by throwing it into its center and expanding the machine complex to include it. In this sense, a food system can't be considered separate from this industrial foundation. A food system is this industrial foundation once it has been expanded to include the systems that are replicating its operators and designers. Now in the system I'm trying to develop, I'm assuming the industrial foundation that I have described earlier, but this same basic pattern holds no matter how simple the industrial foundation is, even if it's consisting of a network of stone tools forming each other. If a food system is to be physically constructed from scratch, the hard part of that project isn't the activity of farming or cooking, it's assembling the infrastructure required to build a tractor, build a refrigerator, or build a combine. If you're trying to design a food system, the industrial objects necessary to operate that system are as important as the specific methods of cultivation or fertilization because they are one interrelated system. In this simplified, abstracted industrial system, there is one machine of each type, just enough to represent the fundamental structure of interactions between components of the system. If this industrial system can make a copy of itself, it can make copies of every component it is composed of, and with data from previous replication events, we can know the raw materials, labor, and energy required to accomplish this, and project the series of processes necessary to increase the quantity of components by some magnitude forward in time. So, relative proportions of the system components can be altered if needed, or the overall extent of the system itself can be expanded or contracted by replicating individual components or removing components from the system, and then scaling the rest of the components of the system based on the internal system interactions so that, as a whole, a state of balanced production is achieved. This is what the linear programming methods of Kantorovich and Leontief are meant to accomplish, to scale the system components in such a way that they are in proportion to a given set of production goals. In such an expansion or contraction of the industrial system or its subsystems, the system is subject to fundamental material constraints. Individual system components have a capacity or rate of production at the initial system state before this change occurs. The whole purpose of this disproportionate growth or contraction is to alter the rate of production various system components are capable of. There is a finite pool of skilled laborers to draw from who are capable of performing these operations. Workers can be trained to perform operations, but this takes a certain amount of time. There is a finite pool of raw materials and energy available to immediately begin drawing from. There is a finite amount of mineral deposits we are aware of at any given time. A finite total pool of mineral deposits that are actually accessible. A finite area of land actively producing organisms at probabilistic rates. And a finite area of land available for cultivation without inducing global ecological destabilization. For long-term system stability, the overall industrial system must not continuously increase in size. It must be kept at a size well within the boundaries of these system constraints. These system component expansions and contractions are being performed mainly to alter the relative proportions of system components so that they may better serve the immediate needs of the population. Overall system expansion is only performed to initially establish such a system, and overall system contraction is only performed if the system has mistakenly overshot and has expanded beyond its system constraints. In the labor time accounting system Marx describes, commodity exchange is replaced by distribution according to the labor time contributed, after all of the deductions have taken place that allow the system to make sense. The socially necessary labor time required to produce a product establishes a standard unit of account so that labor time contributed by an individual to society can then be taken back at a roughly equal measure as individual consumption. This is a nice feature because individual consumption is regulated in such a way that no one is taking from the stock of social products more in terms of labor time required than they are providing to the system. 
Withdrawals of products from the stock of social products give us a way of determining local and system-wide consumption rates that should inform the requirements of the social productive processes. It doesn't seem like it would be too hard to design the logistics systems to adjust production and the transport of products to local warehouses in response to those signals. It's often insisted that this is not a market, but it sure feels an awful lot like a market, though it's a very weird market structure. Maybe there is some subtle definitional difference that I'm not appreciating, like that a market explicitly refers to commodity exchange, but I don't have any real problem with seeing this as some sort of a market socialist system. It has market-like elements, at least, with some degree of self-regulation, and operates in a way analogous to a market system with price signals that can continuously adjust supply and demand, but overcomes the negative aspects of production for profit. Now, there's a passage in the Critique of the Gotha program just after the part where Marx is describing the system that says, In spite of this advance, this equal right is still constantly encumbered by a bourgeois limitation. The right of the producers is proportional to the labor they supply. The equality consists in the fact that measurement is made with an equal standard, labor, but one man is superior to another physically or mentally, and so supplies more labor in the same time, or can work for a longer time, and labor, to serve as a measure, must be defined by its duration or intensity, otherwise it ceases to be a standard of measurement. This equal right is an unequal right for unequal labor. Kleiman and a lot of other people I've read, interpret this to mean that Marx's system, individual remuneration will be based on the labor hours contributed as well as their individual intensity of labor. I had always interpreted this passage to mean that the system isn't primarily trying to enforce an absolute equality in society, that Marx accepts that in lower stage communism there will still be social inequalities simply because people's abilities and needs are unequal. If Marx is suggesting what Kleiman is saying, I think we can safely say, fuck trying to objectively measure everyone's individual intensity of labor, because that seems fucking impossible. Moving on. The Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution is a very interesting text, but it's light on the details about how this system of labor time accounting gets tied in with the comprehensive system of economic planning. That's not exactly a fault of the text. I think there are a lot of ways a system like that could be planned that would all work. I think it succeeds in what it sets out to do. It very clearly and systematically explains the system Marx was putting forward for how a socialist mode of production would work, the history of the thought of economic planning that led up to how this ended up being implemented, and why that had such a negative effect on the social structure of those societies. It fleshes out their conception of how this might work and why using labor as a unit of account is essential to implement immediately if you want to successfully establish the socialist mode of production. The basic organizational structure they put forward, to the extent that they actually provide this, is compelling and an interesting way to go about things. Their structure of guilds or productive associations is reminiscent of some of the syndicalist conceptions of organized production, but without the rather convoluted underlying economic system that you usually find in that tradition. They say that behind all of this you have a system of economic planning, but I'm still not exactly clear on, in their conception of the system, how the rates of consumer goods are being withdrawn from the system in each locality gets responded to by the productive system and coordinated, if this is done by planning periods or being continuously adjusted. They kind of just fall back on the producer and the consumer associations will decide by communicating with each other, but there is clearly the idea that the flow of products through a system directly indicates demand rather than it being indicated through an arbitrary profit mechanism as in capitalism. I've only read the first editions, so maybe some of these things were more clearly addressed in the second edition, and I'm just not aware of that. This system would be a lot easier to use for products that are truly reproducible and don't rapidly deteriorate, that can sit around for a while and be moved around as needed throughout the system. How the labor required for transport is accounted for seems complicated. It could either be added to the labor required for the product in aggregate or accounted for in the communist tax for infrastructure. 
You could also have regional variations in the cost of products that reflect local differences in transporting different products to different locations, which seems almost essential for the accounting system to account for the actual labor required for intermediate products used in the productive processes. The final transportation cost, once the product has left the productive facility, is really what needs to be addressed. All of the other transportation costs can be adequately incorporated directly into the labor time accounting system that is suggested in the text, though this never seems to be directly addressed. If cost is accounted for in aggregate, either by the labor cost itself or indirectly through the GSU system, labor that is being performed due to the spatial distribution of products throughout the world is being effectively obscured. The individual consumer does not see this cost tacked on to the labor time representation they're confronted with when the product appears before them on the shelf, or more precisely, they do not see this value but only in aggregate. It is not directly tied to their individual position in geographic space. It seems like this would be most problematic with food distribution. A globally aggregated labor time accounting for food is obviously not going to reflect the cost of getting each type of food to each locality. Accurately representing the actual labor cost required would require some sort of regional variation in labor cost for each particular region. Though long-distance transport of ingredients for cooking needs to be minimized, there are clearly plenty of reasons this would still be commonplace, so it seems likely that however this system works, labor costs aren't going to be identical for the same product type in all localities if the labor cost that appears on the shelf is to serve as the fundamental purpose in this system of distribution to indicate to the consumer, in as transparent and as clear a manner as possible, the socially necessary labor time required to reproduce the specific product of labor and to place it onto this shelf that appears before them. Producing a pint of strawberries in January is not the same as producing a pint of strawberries in June in every region of the world, even if globally the aggregate socially required labor time were to somehow remain the same throughout the year because the cyclical production rates average out or can be forced to average out over the entire geographic expanse of the Earth. If those strawberries need to be transported from a farm in Peru to appear on a shelf in Vermont in January, their embodied socially required labor time is fundamentally not the same as it would be on a shelf in Peru in January. It takes a great deal more labor time to accomplish this than would be represented in a globally aggregated system. The consumer must be informed through the labor cost presented to them that we can get you your strawberries in January, but this will be done at a cost that you will need to provide through an additional expenditure of labor power if our global system of labor time accounting is not to be thrown all out of whack by your incessant demands. Now it needs to be made clear that this does not constitute a price policy such as shadow prices. This is simply a more nuanced representation of embodied labor time that represents labor costs as the sum of vector components. One is the average socially required labor time globally that a product requires for its reproduction. The other is the concrete labor time required to physically move this finished product from one location to the other. This allows the labor cost to contain within it a spatial component, because the spatial distribution of products at any time in any society is fundamentally an aspect of product distribution that must be accounted for in any system that seeks to regulate how those products are distributed on the basis of embodied labor time. Maybe this problem can be addressed by just excluding extreme cases from circulation, or maybe it somehow isn't actually a problem, or the solution requires new problems that are worse and that's somehow not apparent to me. It seems like this is a system-wide problem that needs to be dealt with in some way, and I don't see any clear solution to it other than a local spatial component being included in the labor cost representation. Transport is not that big of a problem in the long run. Our current freight transport system is incredibly badly designed when compared to what could have been done with simple electrified rail, but it's still an important consideration especially for long-distance transport of products. It becomes much more complicated when you're moving products that can rot. You don't have the same maneuverability where you can let a car sit in the yard to make up for slop in the scheduling system. 
Trains aren't just moving from point A to point B, they're moving from node to node and being broken apart and reassembled. Most of the time a car is just sitting and not moving, and the rate it can move through this system is not determined by the speed the trains move, but by the rate of the sorting process. Movement of products through a system is not a minor consideration, it's a very important aspect of coordination, and that process needs to run smoothly if you want to be able to rapidly adjust process scheduling to local changes in the rates of consumption without excessive time delays. In the modern economy, this sorting problem is often sidestepped by shifting transport to trucks that can facilitate point-to-point -point transport, but that comes with a massive loss of efficiency in terms of energy, labor time, and raw material consumption. That can be somewhat alleviated through local food production, but you will absolutely need to be able to move perishable food through the system to balance out stochastic variations in regional yields and to increase the local variety of food ingredients that are constrained by local environment conditions. And that comes at a high social labor cost. Now there are other problems food introduces into this labor time accounting system besides the complexity of transporting perishable goods. Previously, I described a labor time accounting system for food production that models all of food processing as a series of batch processes that culminates in either a shelf-stable product or a prepared meal. There is no inherent difficulty there. The labor time can be effectively measured as with any other productive process. Within the domain of food preservation, transforming organisms into foods that don't rapidly degrade, this becomes relatively straightforward. These products can be effectively treated as reproducible because they are because they are being made in a standardized way at scale. What is not freely reproducible is a freshly prepared meal. The products flowing from a cook's hands are as much non-reproducible works as paintings. They are an individual interpretation of food categories continuously developed over generations. They are studies in the subjective experience obtained by the transformation of mixtures of organisms by the application of heat and knives. If you want to obtain an average socially required labor time for the product of cookery, you are effectively averaging a set that contains one element. The labor time spent in preparation and the final cooking can only be expressed in any meaningful way as the concrete labor time embodied in the product of cookery, period. No universal system presents itself as an obvious choice through which these processes are able to be carried out. If you want to maximize the range of prepared meals, everyone must have access to a well-stocked kitchen to cook in, that much is clear. If you want well-trained cooks in the collective kitchens, they need to learn at their mama's knee. That is also clear. Nothing can replace home cooking. The quality that is possible there through sheer obsession and dedication is a level of quality that a collective kitchen can only vainly hope to aspire to. The home kitchen can't be done away with entirely or replaced with some kind of communal group kitchen. It also can't be the sole system of cookery. After a day's work, people need the option available to them to just buy a hot meal. Socialized cooking also plays a role in regulating the stockpiles of ingredients used in cookery. The cook's task is to transform the ingredients overwhelming the food storage system into prepared meals. Due to the unpredictable nature of food production, this must be accomplished on the fly and must be able to be done for any given collection of ingredients in a way that satisfies the nutritional requirements of all the individuals in the community. That is why the cultural heritage of accumulated culinary techniques must be at the cook's fingertips and organized in the way suggested by the recipe indexing system to develop the cook's repertoire so that it is capable of immediately transforming this ever-shifting and fluctuating storehouse of ingredients into meals that the workers' bellies hunger for. There is no other way for this to be accomplished without large-scale waste. There is no time to delay. The food will rot and waste away if it is not immediately converted into an object suitable for consumption. Under capitalism, the hospitality industry is imagined to be part of the service industry, though that is obviously not the case. Cooking is fundamentally a productive process. 
Perhaps this is a relic of cooks being the servants of the wealthy, but they make a product out of products. This is not at all some sort of service being provided that has no identifiable product of labor. I can imagine it being suggested that perhaps the weird behavior of the food industry can be incorporated into the GSU, where all of the social activities that don't fit nicely into the labor theory of value get crammed into to ameliorate the problems they present to the labor accounting system that is to form the basis for the socialist mode of production. This doesn't seem to me like a reasonable solution, though it could be done. Very often, a person's appetite is only properly satisfied by some obscure delicacy that isn't to be consumed constantly but periodically, and these moments form in periods of pleasant retrospection the illusion that our lives are more than a continuous sequence of miseries. These only temporarily obtainable subjective experiences need to be made available on demand to the laboring masses, although they can never form the primary basis of a food supply, and so they need to be accounted for in terms of the labor cost associated with them. Such is the nature of human life, to be constantly presented with the potential for contentment and to have this opportunity snatched away by the limitations inherent in the productive processes present in any particular period of economic history. This is the domain of the high-quality kitchen with a regional focus, with its own specialities and a high variety. It can only be sustained in an area with a relatively high population density. Its output can't be made on an immense scale because it requires a high labor input at any given time, and at any given time there will be a relatively limited demand. Its ingredients may be expensive, but they don't need to attain a high quality. Its purpose is merely to make available traditional foods that either can't be recreated in a home kitchen or to approach the quality of the skilled home cook at a larger scale. Its cost of reproduction is relatively high, but that is unavoidable due to the nature of the processes involved, and this will vary from kitchen to kitchen depending on the foods made. This is the highest level that socialized cooking can aspire to. To adequately represent all of the major world cuisine types in a single community would be a major accomplishment. Food waste would be hard to manage in these systems. Something would need to be done with food that is prepared but never actually purchased. Included among this establishment would be pubs, pizza shops, chocolate and candy shops, bakeries, donut shops, pastry shops, ice cream parlors, and all of the other various small food producers, and it would be neglectful to entirely do without them. There are also institutional kitchens where large amounts of food can be cooked at once and not necessarily at a low quality, but the potential variety of meals prepared is limited to the sorts of meals that can lend themselves well to this style of cooking. With just a few smallish 40-gallon steam kettles and broiler pans, a handful of people can easily cook for a thousand people at a time, and the labor cost of a meal can be driven down nearly to the cost of the ingredients and energy consumed. This is the style of cooking I do when I prepare soup, though my scale is limited due to the lack of capital and I'm doing it to freeze or to make it into a powder. Certain styles of cooking lend themselves to this technique rather well. Indian and Cajun cuisine come to mind. If done well, quality can be maintained at scale, but you're dropping the variety available at a given time. In a day, only a few types of food are going to be prepared, though the meals could change each day. This would also be the sort of thing a basic cafeteria or buffet-style establishment would be doing, though there, variety at one time is raised quite high, but it remains the same day to day. This has the advantage over a smaller kitchen of lowering the socially required labor time involved in cooking, and if this is prioritized over the ability to choose among many options, and it would justifiably be for many people, it can be an extremely efficient system of mass-producing high-quality nutritious food. It also allows you to draw a lot of a handful of particular ingredients out of the food storage system in a local area at once, and this is very useful for maintaining a fresh stock of produce. A well-designed food cooking system really needs to be both of these to properly function in an efficient system that can minimize food waste and provide the full range of variety together with low-cost options, along with providing people the ability to cook at home and develop their skills in kitchens that are actually designed to be cooked in. 
Let's return for a moment to the agricultural system as a whole. The best that can really be done from a planning perspective is to create for each agricultural region a set of crops that is as balanced as possible and to model each plot using the information available to create a probabilistic estimate of potential yields the region can be expected to produce. There's no way of predicting in what system exactly what will be obtained at the end of this process. There is an expectation that over the large scales involved, the actual yields obtained across all regions will approximately correspond to these probabilistic estimates. There's a baked-in incentive to slightly overshoot the food supply, and what we don't consume can be fed to the hogs to reduce the likelihood of famine or the unpleasant situation of barren shelves. Once the seeds and transplants are in the ground, the output is set, and this can only be increased by the diligence of the cultivation process and the continuous battle with the rot. It is only after the harvest that regional variations in yield can be adjusted by regional transfers, although these harvests are in some sense continuously occurring. In addition, this is an inherently cyclical system. The goal is to arrive at a stable system that can be repeated year after year with minor refinements, and though it displays fluctuations, these are within acceptable limits that permit the reproduction of human labor and the satisfaction of basic nutritional requirements. I think a modeling system incorporating mathematical representations of the sort of soil property balancing systems I described earlier, combined with crop growth models calibrated for local conditions, would allow local farming communities to effectively plan their production and maintain the health of the soil about as well as that's possible to do on a large scale as entire landscapes. Mathematical models already exist that are perfectly capable of doing that, and much more sophisticated mathematical modeling could be developed if needed. There's a place for agricultural planning above that level, of course. On a national and international level, those cropping systems need to be in the right proportions and planned out in a way that in aggregate they can meet the overall needs of society. Using those crop growth models and probabilistic models that can account for expected rates of extreme weather events can help test that system using simulations to see how they would perform as a whole in those cases and adjustments could be made to make them more resilient in certain ways. Once those proportions have been relatively well established, there's not much need for that sort of thing unless adjustments need to be made based on the system's performance. You could use linear optimization to do things like plan the transport of food after harvests are known to distribute it through a system based on local consumption rates or something like that. But other than that, there's not a whole lot that a central planning agency would need to do here that a local community could not do itself. Once the system is set up, you're pretty much planting your shit and just hoping for the best like people have always done. The hard part is monitoring and modeling the surrounding ecosystem and finding ways to minimize the harm that you are doing to local populations there just by using that land to produce crops and keep animals on it. The food processing systems as well are perfectly capable of being modeled and regulated by the labor time accounting system and batch process representations I described. You have a lot of leeway in proportions of stocks and domesticates that can be mixed together to provide balanced meals. Just using the standard, already developed, traditional styles of cookery there is enough variety of recipes that a person could eat a different meal every day of their life without ever repeating one. The mechanical systems and energy flows through the system are what would be hardest to maintain and regulate in a system like this. You would gain a lot of systemic efficiency, however, just by spatially orienting everything in a way where cars can be mostly done away with and keeping the density of housing and productive establishments high so that the extent of infrastructure stays rather limited. Electric rail would make transport pretty damned efficient, especially compared to the system in place now, and it could easily facilitate public transport and travel between communities if they were planned using the clustered village style I described in the model farming community. Problems are really going to be present where population densities like this can't be maintained due to resource constraints, a lack of rainfall and available ground and surface water in regions with large expanses of dry land agricultural systems or marginal pastures. 
If these are farmed, you're going to be limited to dispersed settlements and there's probably no real solution to that. Regulating a system like this once it's in place, at least the food system portion, seems fairly straightforward. I don't know in extreme detail how that regulatory apparatus should be set up, but I feel like it's at least possible and cybernetic styles of organization and dynamic modeling would help with that. What remains very unclear to me is what level of technical sophistication can be maintained in the long term. How do you select from all the possible systems of agriculture in a way that the rates of mineral and water extraction required are kept low enough that it can keep going for long periods of time? That seems at least as important a design criteria as seeking improvements in labor efficiency or system stability in the short term. Industrial systems producing agricultural machinery or infrastructure must be selected from to reduce the use of rare minerals and rely as much as possible on more abundant ones. Another part of that process involves designing equipment to be durable, easily repairable, and its parts easily replaceable and recyclable. Another is developing an energy accounting system that can make transparent the embodied energy in every process and component of that system, not as the basis of transactions like in technocracy or for establishing prices, but just so it can be kept track of to determine ways energy use can be driven down. The same goes for all other economic processes built on top of that agro-industrial foundation. Consumer goods need to be radically redesigned so a consistently high level of quality can be maintained across the board while emphasizing durability, repairability, and recyclability in the design process. How good is long enough to be considered sustainable is also unclear. A thousand years? Ten thousand years? Forever? To what extent can we know how many minerals can be extracted or how the variations present in mineral deposits will affect their end products? If we decide we want it to be able to continue going along for a very long time and drop the mechanical systems required down very low, this is going to have very significant impacts on the rest of the system. Increasing labor time involved in food production puts fundamental restrictions on the service industry and the consumer goods system. The overall scale of the system required is influenced by population level. What human population size are we comfortable with maintaining, and how would that even be determined? A higher population size means a lower technical complexity for a given mineral extraction rate. How are these variables to be weighted? Regulation finds a stable state and maintains it, but just as in ecosystems, economic systems have an infinite number of possible states, and once reached, these are difficult to shift back out of without a sufficient perturbation, capitalism being an unfortunate example of this. We do not even know what exactly will be left once this new mode of production can be established. Capitalism has already exhausted in the blink of an eye much what should have been the inheritance of many future generations. There is no way to calculate in a there is no way to calculate in a systematic way the social desirability of such trade-offs. Maybe we can estimate according to some rubric the opportunity costs, in a strictly comparative way, a set of known productive processes and their products, but there is no formula that will provide the technical solutions themselves that might exist that are hidden from our view. The physical structure of a product or system of mechanical replication flows from the design properties of a designer. This is not some application of scientific understanding as it is often pretended. It is a subjective evaluation drawn from a limited understanding that leads the design down one path that is iteratively explored while innumerable possible pathways go neglected. This process may take into consideration and incorporate material properties and mathematical descriptions of forces or interactions, but these are all secondary considerations to mold the physical world into a structure that will satisfy the initial design priorities. If we want to restrict the use of iron ore so that it can last a thousand more years based on what we think we clearly have, State that and build the system in a way that it can be done. If we're trying to stay within acceptable planetary boundaries that, if crossed, will rapidly destabilize the entire system, those need to be clearly defined and the system designed within it. We don't need some elaborate system of shadow prices that we hope will indirectly guide consumer choices to avoid planetary meltdown. 
As far as I can tell, we don't even know what those boundaries are or how they could be determined. I suppose in any sort of proposal suggesting a cybernetic system of social organization, this is to be done by those higher level systems involved in future planning, but that seems about as unsatisfying as the council communists reassuring me when the path to be taken becomes less clear that the cascading systems of workers' councils will decide. Ultimately, agricultural systems need to be worked out at all levels of technological complexity. I don't know what the fundamental limitations to the system are, like mineral or water resources, population levels, energy availability, the extent of growing lands, the requirements of the biosphere as a whole, to minimize our current mass extinction event, and I don't really think anyone does. Developing that understanding would get us closer to more realistic ideas about how food systems need to be, but we need a wide variety of design proposals that assume different levels of mechanization and industrial development. Just to develop the infrastructure required for a food system with relatively high mineral and technical requirements, if that ends up being feasible, we need simpler systems that can be put in place first to sustain us in the meantime. The food system I described includes combine harvesting of grain on a large scale, because as far as I can tell, removing that with as high of a population as we have today could have mass genocide-inducing consequences. It assumes that a transition away from fossil fuels is possible that could be efficient enough to energetically accommodate cold chain systems, season extension structures, liquid and gaseous fueled engines, large mechanized vehicles, and a complex system of cookery that can maintain a very high variety of foods. That would all be very nice to have, but it's entirely possible that raw material restrictions might be far more extreme than I realize that can make such a system unworkable. I'd love to see other approaches that assume an oxen-driven system or how this might work entirely without combustion engines, but the kind of stuff I generally see done along those lines tend to be rather limited in imagination or amount to a return to homesteading or feudal society. I'd really like to see more work done on economic planning systems that try to incorporate cybernetics into the fundamental principles framework. The only system I've seen that uses labor vouchers over a shadow price system is Cockshots, and though it's actually rather good compared to the others, he's trying to do too much with simple linear programming methods, and you can definitely see his Leninist background in the model. I just don't see the appeal of his shadow price approach. It's so unimaginative and fundamentally unworkable. It seems like it's coming from a perspective that can only conceive of an alternative to capitalism as an artificial recreation of its pricing mechanism where all economic information needs to be ambiguously mashed together and represented as a single set of exchange values. I actually do like Lang quite a bit. I'd really like to get around to reading his later book where he explicitly tries to incorporate cybernetics into his economic planning system, and Kantorovich is also quite wonderful. I want to go through his appendix in detail to better understand what he's suggesting there, which I can mostly follow. It'll also be interesting to see what Tom O'Brien and Don will end up with. But I've got to say, I'm not loving the idea of a socialist land rent. I wish I could tie these systems together better for you. I'm afraid I'm just not acquainted enough with the literature of economic planning or cybernetics to do it any justice. But hopefully the agricultural system I described here sheds a bit of light on possible agroecology-minded approaches to food systems that may be useful in such a system, though I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of what I'd like to say on the subject. I also don't have the mathematical sophistication to draw up a formal model that could adequately describe the sort of planning system I envision a socialist economy like this might have. I only know enough mathematics to be able to understand how particular branches can be used to model certain system components. There is unfortunately so little information available on these things. I will say that I don't think anything short of a true spatio-temporal model will do. I don't like these really simple vector space representations you see in Pericon's formal model. These planning period systems are totally inadequate. You need continuous planning processes and dynamic system representations to get anywhere near what you need. Hopefully, eventually, I can find the time to study the higher mathematics required to understand these topics and describe the system I imagine in more detail, something I'd really like to explore further.
One last thing. You guys have been reading a lot of the more recent ecological Marxist texts, which I should really get around to reading someday. I've only read a few essays by Foster and Moore, but I wonder if they went into the ideas of Lewontin and Levins at all in the books that you read. The Capitalism and the Web of Life book seemed like he was lifting the whole Cartesian rationalist foundation of ecological thought straight from Lewontin, which is a kind of reoccurring idea you see in him. Maybe that's just a coincidence, because that's the only other place I've encountered that idea before, and it's more commonplace than I realize. I did manage to find this idea in an interview of Moore's, which I think supports this idea. Moore said, It was with Bellamy Foster that I learned Richard Levins and Richard Lewontin on The Dialectical Biologist, and I can still remember saying to Bellamy Foster in a seminar that this should be on our methodological text. He sort of laughed it off and didn't quite know what to do with that. He celebrates them, but does nothing like what the dialectical imagination does. The Dialectical Biologist is a wonderful book, and Lewontin and Levins influenced me immensely. They were both extremely important theorists in evolutionary biology who, along with Gould, were very openly Marxists. I don't know if you'd want to do an episode on that book. Editor's note here for me, we gave that the old college try on episode 86. It's just a collection of essays, but I did find a free version of one online, though it's full of errors and the equations are all garbled. It'd be worth reading, if only for your own benefit. Most of it is pretty easy reading. It'd be worth reading, if only for your own benefit. Most of it is pretty easy reading, but a few of them are more technical essays on biology. At the very least, you should consider watching some of Lewontin's lectures, especially his Massey lecture, Biology as Ideology, which is on YouTube. There's also an excellent three-part lecture series he did at the Santa Fe Institute on there. They're called What is Evolutionary Theory? The Organism is Subject and Object of Evolution, and Does Culture Evolve? There are a few videos with Levins on there, but not a whole lot. One describes some of his work in Cuba, helping them to develop an ecological farming system. I hope that helps explain in more detail what I've been working on. Properly explaining each subject requires some other subject to be explained until the whole thing grows out of control, and I've still left out most of what I'd originally wanted to describe. This was going to continue on to include an overview of how these systems might be developed within capitalist society, and what that developmental process might look like in its nascent stages. This was to include how rudimentally textile and heavy machinery infrastructure can be developed by reverse engineering things like the old draper looms, early knitting machines, World War II era machine tools and agricultural machineries of the 60s and 80s, before computerized control began to be implemented. That will require another text at least as long as this one, and be more difficult to write as my ideas on those subjects are less developed. But hopefully I can get something out to you eventually along those lines. Hope that you're doing well, comrades. If you have any specific concerns or questions about the things I've written here, let me know. I can go in on more depth about any of these subjects. The sort of stuff you're likely to find on this sort of thing is going to be very badly researched and impractical, and almost no serious work is being done with it. It's good that you're looking into the agroecology literature. That's about the best of it, especially the work coming out of Latin America, where the discipline seems to be centered these days. Nearly everything coming from permaculture and biodynamics is going to be intellectual poison. Anything valuable they might have to offer is simply being lifted from other, more developed systems. The alternative agricultural movement is dominated by liberals and the far-right libertarians, and they thoroughly infest it with their half-baked doctrines and pseudo-intellectual culture. These systems can only be developed into what they need to become by the socialists, but unfortunately, this work has been almost completely neglected. I appreciate the work you're doing to raise awareness of the issues and encourage you to continue to research these things. There's a great deal to learn and the connections need to be made between the very diverse disciplines. Continue in the struggle, comrades. These ideas must be spread. The lamp of science must burn. Alere flammum.